0: Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond. Uh, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by a uh, friend of FinPro, friend of friend of the podcast. Um, Doug is back again. Um, and um I'm trying to think it's it's probably the the I think you're the second guest to come back twice. Uh but it's a it's a small, it's a small pool of people, Doug. I, I wish I'd like to say you're the first, but you're sadly not. But um but welcome back. Thanks, Thanks. for joining us
1: yeah no thanks for having me on again uh very excited to do this uh it's always fun to do i feel like we have these conversations quite frequently but to, to record them uh is hopefully uh interesting to to the rest of the community yeah i i think that's always the challenge i was saying this earlier
0: we were we were we were pitching for some business in in the in the the re, yeah the recruitment realm that we work in that's that's really where we operate we were pitching for a search but it's someone we know really well as a friend and actually had to t- say to them it was like my start was going pretend we don't know each other because otherwise there's definitely going to be something that i need to know that i won't know because we'll assume knowledge of each other so i'm going to try and take that attitude today so um you know you and i have obviously been we talk fairly frequently um we tend to kind of catch up whenever you're in town or i'm, I'm in your town so we're going to pretend we don't and we're going, we're going to dive into your new venture so before we start doing that, Doug, as is tradition on the show, um, introduce yourself and, and then introduce your new business,
1: Chewis um, and, 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 and what you've got planned for that. Yeah, uh, so Doug Ramon, um, now two-time founder, three, three-time actually, um, if you count a little, little side business that I had uh, back in the day, um, which I'm happy to, to chat about, um, former attorney, uh, obviously from the States, uh, in the New York area now, um, and kind of a late comer to insurance as far as like my career is concerned, but the more I get into it, the more I fall in love with it and, and all the nuances and all the interesting characters. Um, and now this, you know, not it's not new anymore, but the whole insure tech movement and how it's evolving and changing, and how uh, incumbents are trying to incorporate it, and it's it's just like a really interesting um, I think career to to get into, uh, and yeah, just happy to be a part of it. Um, Turis is uh, my new my new startup, uh, relatively new. We are not a insurtech, uh, quote unquote, but we are a fintech serving the insure tech space. So a vertical uh, banking and payment solution, challenger bank, neobank, whatever you'd like to call it, uh, but that's solely focused on the insurance space. Uh, so our first customer segments are brokers, uh, so independent agents in the US. Um, we are starting to work with a few MGAs as well, uh, and then have desires to, to eventually start working with, with smaller carriers. Um, Focusing on a lot of different things, but, but think about a bank and kind of what they do, uh, and that's obviously a large part of what we're doing, um, but then trying to optimize it for the insurance space. Uh, so very complex financial operations involved, um, even for very small companies, uh, a lot of different parties uh, that money gets moved around to, uh, a lot of custody issues. Uh, a lot of lending needs uh, that are needed and not quite understood by the the, the typical banking community. Um, and then a lot of integrations and data that can actually speed up a lot of those processes that typical banks and payment solutions just don't have the capabilities of ingesting and making use of. So uh, that's a lot there, uh, but maybe the easiest way to think of us is, is a, a neobank focused uh, vertically on the insurance space. Perfect,
0: perfect, yeah. Uh, and I I like the way you condensed it down for me because I, I I think I think that's the important thing to um focus on is is that why why do we need a bank that's specifically set up for the insurance industry what 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 are those kind of unique challenges and and uh yeah I suppose I suppose I think to answer that as well is it you know, where does this come from, this need? It, 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 you know, because you had an MGA before and stable, and then now you're on this pathway. But so presumably, were these problems that you ran into on, on your previous venture?
1: Yeah, uh, so it ended up being something that took up the majority of my time as we thought about scaling up uh, the operations at stable at the commercial auto MGA that I started. Uh, and And when I started that company, I didn't think of that as being an issue, right? It's like, okay, we'll get a bank account, we'll get a payment solution, uh, and you know, we'll have some accounting needs, uh, but no more so than any other startup would need or any other small business would need. Uh, we were very wrong. Um, our relatively small book of business uh, at Stable, kind of at the top, we had one full-time person kind of focused, internally focused on moving money around, getting it to our brokers, taking payments, um, collating all of that. Uh, obviously, a lot of data entry was involved because our bank wouldn't allow us to, you know, to access an API to move money around. So once you get a human involved, even if they're the best human in the world, there's data entry mistakes that take place. And then you're unwinding those and figuring those out. You're explaining uh, double entry and premium entry to your accountants. Um, when you're starting your bank account, you're trying to explain to them why you're Uh, moving money around as quickly as you are in large amounts uh, when you're only keeping a relatively small portion of it. Um, So, yeah, just a lot of complexity, I think, in setting up all of the operations. Um, But then I think how it distills down at least the the three immediate problems that we're trying to tackle um, that are specific to the insurance space and I think why you need a a set-aside solution So payments is kind of the first one. So Stripe, amazing product, uh, obviously, especially from a a developer's uh, perspective, very easy to integrate with. Uh, But from an insurance perspective, it's very expensive uh, to collect payments via Stripe. So 29 3.5% in the U.S. of every dollar goes to Stripe. Uh, if you're a, a, a SaaS solution with 80% margins, that's that's an okay thing. Um, but if you are an NGA who, at the end of the day, may only be keeping five to seven percent um, after you pay your brokers out, uh, that's a lot to to take on. That that could be up to half of of your actual margin there, uh, just going to those fees. And so um, it's just expensive, uh, unfortunately, for uh, for a lot of insurers. But that's there's really only a couple of games in town, and Stripe seems to still be the best. Um, and then on the lending side, uh, what we have is these really strong books of business, you know, whether it's an MGA just showing great growth uh, in a single product line or uh, a broker that has, um, you know, a, a segment of the uh, economy that they're focused on, let's say like technology SMB and b companies. Um, their books are not counted as as real assets. They're, they're counted as intangible assets versus like if I was going to go out and buy a fleet of vehicles or manufacturing equipment. Um, so there's nothing to for the bank to kind of get a hold of and say, okay, we could sell this, you know, this asset if we needed to foreclose upon it. Um, we feel differently and there's, I mean, there's a lot of companies starting to pop up that are helping you kind of sell different parts of your book. Um, Obviously, these books are very well uh, thought of from uh, private equity companies. Uh, And so we see a lot of value in these intangible assets. And I think it's really just understanding the risk associated with them. And then maybe like how that broker is diversified across the economy. Are they they focused on one part of the economy that, that might be harder hit by a recession? Or are they like a local broker, um, you know, in, in a growing part of the country that just deals with a lot of different small businesses? Those are two very different types of risk profiles from an underwriting perspective for lending. So trying to take that into account to get better products uh, to the space. Um, and I think the third big thing is just all the data that exists to move this money around. Um, it's it's now sitting in policy admin systems, it's sitting in agency management systems. And you don't need to have a person kind of taking data out of of your policy admin system or your agency management system, putting it into a spreadsheet and then taking the results of that spreadsheet and putting it into your bank. Um, You should be able to connect all of that. I think with insurance in particular, like we are highly regulated, right? Brokers are highly regulated. MGA's are. Insurance carriers absolutely are. Um, So... We feel more comfortable as a bank giving access to our APIs to allow for those automated processes to happen. The fraud can take place because you're you're automating some of that. There's no human involved uh, anymore. Uh, but we as a bank or we as a um you know partnered with banks feel comfortable taking that risk because of the highly regulated nature of the space. So those are kind of the three key areas that we've we've honed in on um as reasons that there needs to be a, a company or a bank focused just on the insurance space
0: yeah it makes sense as well I mean, i you know the insurance just by the nature of the moving parts of the business is like you look at it and it's always going to be an inefficient ecosystem because there are too many connecting elements and they're all connecting businesses and everyone is taking a a point on the dollar at every kind of transaction point um so you're always left with kind of those leakage points. Um, and it makes sense if you can kind of make that more seamless. Um, but this is a much bigger challenge that you're kind of taking on. Um, how did you have the confidence to tackle something like this? Uh, I mean, it might speak to you just as an entrepreneur and and, and, and maybe that is it, it, you know, I know you've got a, you've got a really good founding team as well. Uh, You know, how much has kind of team played in the confidence that you can tackle this,
1: this scale of challenge? Yeah, so I had done a lot of research when I was at Stable on banking as a services platform. So there, there's been a lot of um, uh, a lot of advancements made in the space, and like on the financial services side, space to allow for you to launch some of these products much faster than you could a decade ago, uh, and what with much less cost. Um, so the way we kind of think of it is. We've built, uh, some technology on top of those services. So banking as a services platforms, we're renting a a PayFAC to start with. It's, it's not our own infrastructure. Um, I think the value that we're building is like how that money moves around, uh, on top of that. And then eventually as we scale up, we will take over the underlying infrastructure just to, to increase our margins and, and increase control over those products, um. So that's helpful, right? It is, it's easier than it was, uh, but by no means, like easy still. Uh, I think it's funny, I was talking to somebody the other day and they're like, okay, you went from trying to launch, you know, this mini insurance company, this MGA, highly regulated, lots of moving parts, lots of partners involved. uh, And then now you're, you're trying to do a bank um, and, and a payments company and you want to do lending um you know in the, in the states anyway those are almost three they're all regulated by the same body but three different various like different sets of laws that, that regulate them um lots of compliance needs making sure you're doing things correctly um you're custodying people's money we're not custodying like almost a layer down right because we're, we're custodying the the carrier's money and customers money as well um so yeah, a lot of a lot of complexity and difficulty. Um, I think my, my former legal background definitely helps with that in at least taking the first step and maybe just knowing which lawyers that we need to talk to to make sure we're doing things correctly. Uh, so we have a really good legal team, a couple different legal teams that we work with um, uh, that always point me in the right direction, whether it's something that we're writing or, or a product that we're building. Um, and then just the founding team in general, uh, they saw the uh, complexity at the MGA, and, and one of them comes from the fintech space uh, as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just the culmination of all of that that gave us the maybe, maybe outwardly, it looks like hubris to say that we could actually do this. Um, but, I, but I also think we're in this interesting um, point of, of startups where when capital is cheap, and, and things like AWS and different uh, infrastructure came along to allow you to very quickly launch products, um, it shrunk the moats around those, like anybody else could kind of follow on and, and do what you were doing. Uh, so I think to some extent now to create value, uh, at least in, the, in, in our view in the FinTech space, um, you need to take a big swing and you need to start building that that moat almost immediately. Um, and if you don't, like if it's too simple, if it's if it is just a point solution, um you're going to have copycats that come along very quickly uh and and you won't be able to defend a mo great value for your investors at that point so um Hmm. definitely a big swing but we just feel like it's it's one that's needed for the space and and it's the best way for us to create value for our investors
0: well if you're gonna take a swing take a big one why not um i I, i'm a big believer in that though and i think i think because by default taking a big swing you kind of you put yourself in a position where there's going to be less direct competition quickly because you're you're being more ambitious and 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 some people might take these kind of point solutions. But then the other thing being is that it speaks to the true challenge faced by your target customer. you know I, I this is not the same thing at all, but we've just switched um all of our systems internally because we had some automated marketing system, we had a candidate management system, we had, you know, a phone system, we had SMS systems, we had all of these different systems. And from a small business perspective, going back to this payment thing, I'm paying seven, eight different separate companies. We now switched to a system where all of that is included. That's the only reason I shifted. So it's like, if you're gonna set up a kind of banking payments facility for insurance, that needs to be that one place I can go and solve all of my kind of problems. Otherwise, why do it, you know, for for one section? because but then arguably the, the the single vertical probably isn't enough um yeah. I thought it was interesting as well to think about this when when you were talking I was like what do you think this allows to do for that kind of want to be entrepreneur that wants to launch that small agency wants to launch that specialist MGA is this the sort of thing that there's an enabling element of that you know we're, we're, this is going to allow entrepreneurs to launch more quickly more efficiently
1: yeah, well, so definitely more efficiently. Um, so I think if you're at the beginning of your journey uh, and you're setting up that solo shop or you know, very small MGA, maybe you're a brilliant underwriter and, and you've gone and got that capacity. Uh, now you're trying to set up the operations side of things, like how do I collect this payment? And great, I'm I'm using, you know, Instanda or Socotra or Josh U, but how do I like how do I actually make my margins um, so so I don't have to use Stripe and integrate with that? Um, so yeah, I I think we can quickly help those, those entrepreneurs set up, um, then I think as we start building our credit facilities and have different lending options, I think we are just going to be able to see like, okay, we, we see a lot of demand for that product that you're launching or this space, the specialty brokerage space that you're getting into. And we're actually fine giving you some money like right up front. Um, and especially if you're using our payment system. So it's, it's almost like it, it. Shopify to an extent where we help you set up that that capability of taking payments in. Um, and then Shopify, you know after they allow an online business to do that, they start offering lending options to them. They say, great, here's some working capital for you. Um, so so absolutely, I think we are hoping that uh, what we are doing from a from the lending perspective does allow businesses to grow uh, more quickly and maybe just feel more comfortable taking a risk and going out on their own, knowing that the the financial infrastructure part of this is now covered and it's one less thing for them to worry about.
0: Yeah, I guess I mean, echoing your journey is that i i I think many founders i talk to it's almost an ongoing joke on the podcast is that you you set up business because you're like you say maybe you're a good underwriter and you say i'm going to set up an mga and create unique products and and then you spend yourself being like part accountant part ops director part legal counsel um and that's the thing that i I think that's I mean that small businesses all over, but particularly in a regulated market, there's always that risk as well that even if you're taking advice, are you taking advice that knows the regulatory landscape that you're dealing with? um it's easy to assume that you're giving it across through an expert, but you're not. So the fact that you build a kind of financial services facility all around one vertical um is 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 kind of an attractive proposition. um where are you in the journey of this? are we launched? Are we live or? Where are we on the kind of, uh, yeah, the timeline?
1: Yeah, so we, we this one has gone a lot faster than MGA. I think we had our, it took me like three years being a broker before we got our capacity as an MGA, but still um, still a lot of compliance to deal with. Uh, our goal is to have the, uh, the bank aspect of what we are doing launched by the end of the year. Uh, that is completely up to our banking partners and regulators, so out of our hands at this point. Um, but we've we've built all the technology to allow for compliance people to get comfortable with what we're doing uh, to make sure that everything kind of checks uh, their data security needs um, and then we have that in a few design partners hands right now uh, on the payment side um, that will be live uh, hopefully within the next month or so and then kind of the first little wedge product that we've built is uh, is for smaller brokers that are taking payments um, and it sounds complex but it actually was was since we built all the infrastructure ourselves, it was quite easy for us to prop on top of that. Um, it's it's a payments tool that allows you to earn some some high yield uh, while you're waiting to send those funds on to your to your carrier partner or wholesale partner. Um, back in the at least in the U.S. back in the day, we found out there's a lot of brokers that were doing this, like in the '80s uh, when interest rates were very high here. Uh, and in a low interest rate environment, uh, new brokers kind of forgot that that wasn't even a thing that they could do. Um, some considered, some states do have, uh, laws around like what you can earn and whose money it is. Uh, but most states in the U S allow you to, to have full access to that as a broker while you're custodying this other, somebody else's money. Um, so we've gone through, and again, I think this speaks to like the, the legal expertise of, of what we're doing, like knowing which state that this money is collected from, we can determine how much you can actually earn there and make sure you remain trust compliant while you are custodying these funds. So um, that's that's the first product that we're launching hopefully in a month here, um, but that's out in demo version already with some uh, with some prospects as well. Uh, and then we, we're working with a few MGA design partners right now uh, on the automation side. So uh, integrating with their policy admin system, automating a lot of their payment processes and fund flow processes. Uh, and we hope to be rolling that out to a bunch more MGAs uh, early in 2024.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I was thinking about the collaboration opportunities with you and and, and lots of other InsurTechs. And um, that kind of leads me on to sort of a slightly non-directly tourist element. And um, we were there for the launch of the InsurTech Association in, in New York, um, which I know that you are I don't know what your role is within that now but you're definitely definitely there at the start and definitely part of that with Josh Hollander who's uh who's a good uh, who's a good friend of the show as well so there's how much does that kind of how much is your decision to get involved in that playing into kind of where you're going to be because presumably it's you know it's a good it's a good place for you to be at the centre of kind of a lot of kind of insure tech innovation, and um yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested to find out more about the association and really why you think these things are important in the insure tech ecosystem.
1: Yeah so th- that was more of a happy confluence um, i think when i took the the ita role uh, which i've definitely stepped back from uh and um but but like it's all volunteer like everybody in there is a volunteer um, so stepping back is more more publicly than than anything um but i think i'm still yeah i'm still the volunteer executive director there uh until uh, somebody else wants to take that mantle uh, some other <laughs> um, but no i'm very happy to to keep doing that um so I took that role back in December when I was uh, wrapping things up at stable. Uh, and, and mostly because when I started stable, um, again, I, I came from a legal background, not a typical entrepreneurial journey. Um, I still have, I, I worked in house at Mercer. Um, I still have friends there that are asking when, you know, when I'm going to come back and and stop all the uh, silly startup nonsense. Um, just lawyers are super risk averse people. Um, but I, I had the, the luck, I think, of being in New York at the time and just meeting a lot of other people that were uh, in the insure tech space, in the fintech space. Uh, New York was like a hotbed, still is to, to an extent, I think, for that, um, especially on the fintech side. Um, but I, I found mentors that really helped me understand what I needed to be doing um, You know, from both the startup perspective, but then like startups specifically for the insurance space and how regulated that is, how you need to think about things. Um, and that that community aspect was something that I wanted to try to get back to when when Stable wrapped up and, and more formalized because anybody could call me at any time or reach out and talk about starting an MGA or different regulatory things or just like startups in general. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting if there was a way for me to to formalize some of that uh into a role. And so uh Bob and Josh, when they were starting the Insure Association, asked if I would come on. They were looking for a founder. Uh, that would kind of sit in the in the front position um help formalize a lot of the uh, I think the structure of the organization and figure out what we were going to do and it was felt like for the first three months I think uh, of this year I really focused on it and it was kind of a mini startup right we had we had this idea of what we wanted to do like this value we wanted to provide to a to a customer segment um other insurtech tech founders um we've gone out and tried to get investors like uh, our our sponsors, right? Are are the investors, uh, and I think we're still trying to find product market fit. But by listening to our customers, like saying, "What can we do that would help you in your journey uh, of this?" And so, um, we've done things. We've done a lot of online things. Uh, we've done some live events. Um, uh, we've talked to other organizations, like the InsureTech UK. is a great organization. Uh, InsureTech India. Uh, there's all these other organizations out there. I think that we're we're learning from. Uh, but there wasn't really one just like focused on founders in general in the US uh, in the insure tech space. And so that's uh, that's what we've set up. And we're, we're still working on, I think, optimizing for everyone. Uh, but we love like the feedback that we've gotten is great because and, and not all positive, right? It's like, hey, you should be doing this or this is what we'd like to see. Um, that feedback we love because it just it helps us figure out exactly what we should be providing to that community base. But we have... Um, I'll probably get this wrong, but I think we have like 60 or 70 overall members now, and about 40 of those are insurtechs uh, at, at this point. Um, and, and a fair number of those are MGAs, which either, I think MGAs in particular, they just have a lot of uh, needs. Startup MGAs have a lot of needs uh, that they need a mentor for. They need somebody that, like that's been on that journey before um that can help block them, them through that um, so that's that's the quick on the um on the ita uh but happy to dive into any of that as well
0: yeah i mean i, I think it serves a really good purpose and I'm, I'm a big big supporter of it and um yeah it speaks to a little bit of what we've been trying to achieve if we are as women which is to a certain extent you know, different businesses within the insurtech ecosystem need different things. But everyone certainly needs that kind of market advice, that kind of the person that's been there, seen it, done it, the person that's kind of made the mistakes that you don't need to have, you know, it's why things like the Lloyd's Lab get such support from us. And, you know, that invaluable kind of Lloyd's Mark expertise, if you're trying to launch something, particularly in the Lloyd's. But then, you know, just building communities is so important because, yeah, one entrepreneur. You know, me and you have shared this conversation many times. Usually, you know, pouring beer into our wounds of things that have gone horribly wrong, and 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 you know, that's enough sometimes. Uh, but usually, it's the it's that voice that gives you a new idea, that gives you a kind of new piece of energy. Um, so I, I I think it serves the purpose. But particularly, I think where you focus on that earlier stage, because we. You and I go to lots of conferences. There's lots of conferences around InsureTech. And one, you know, some of my cynicism with some of those conferences is is that we go there and we see these massive companies that have got all the space. And then I go, is this truly driving the innovation? Now, it's, it's a kind of balance of evils, right? If you didn't have these big sponsors, then these events wouldn't take place. Um, but there's often not you know, there's like a moderate discount for kind of insure techs that are the early stages, but that's where these kind of communities come viable. So I think, I think building communities is, is super important. And um yeah, I, I think it was a great initiative. Um What do you think the the biggest challenge, you know, you, you get the serial entrepreneur tag now because you've done three different businesses too within InsurTech. But specific to InsurTech, what do you think the kind of biggest challenges are and that could be either practically or
1: culturally but i'm intrigued um well so i still think we have and this that you probably know your team knows this more than anyone like the the ability to move some of the talent out of incumbents and even have incumbents be supportive of that i think um that's that's still difficult and and that, that speaks a lot to how good the insurance industry is. Like I think how well it pays, uh, and you know, the work life balance that it provides. Um, yeah. Why, why would I leave this, this job, um, for no pay working twice as much, um, you know, larger chance of failure than success. Like where's the selling point in in any of that? Um, so I think that's, that's a big problem. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's a problem and the, to the extent that like it might not allow for as much innovation to happen but it's because because the industry treats people so well um so it's it's hard to say that's a problem but I do think it leads to uh, longer term you know investment issues around talent right saying he like will you go and build this thing that is definitely needed by the space um and we as an incumbent just can't get comfortable with somebody building it. So I, I don't know how to solve that, but there's definitely been different um, approaches, right? Internal innovation labs, uh, obviously outside investment dollars coming in, which are now harder to come by in a higher interest rate environment. Um, but my hope is, like, we kind of look at what's happened over the last decade when interest rates were low and people were shoving a lot of money into the space. It's like, okay. what can we actually take from that? Uh, and apply it to the next round of what we're doing. Um, whether those are like innovation labs coming back into to vogue with incumbents, um, or outside dollars coming back in, like how can we do this in a, in a more efficient and um, you know ultimately more successful manner? Um, so I think that's that's kind of like a an overall thing that I think about a lot for the space. Um, in particular, like for early stage. Um, I it's, I don't know that this is ever gonna change and probably shouldn't, but just like, you know, the highly regulated nature. So, like, how can I get educated uh, to the extent that I need to be to launch this company? Uh, Cause I don't wanna, like, I have a limited amount of time as an entrepreneur. Um, how can I find, you know, the resources I need to get what I need learned, um, no more, no less uh, to get me to the next stage. And I do think like, you know, another plug for the ITA, it's not just the ITA, like I said, there's other nonprofits out there. Uh, there are for profits as well. Um, you know, the, all the conferences I think do a good job of helping with the education aspect. Um, you have uh, it, like kind of like these in between companies like InsureTech New York um, that are obviously for profit, but that they're I think they're doing their MGA lab right now, right? So, they're great, uh, great, app, um, great program to apply to uh, to learn some of these things. Um, so I think as long as we can kind of keep building that community um, through all different means, not just the ITA, uh, hopefully some of that gets solved as well. Just kind of having the resources um, in front of entrepreneurs when they need them uh, to keep moving forward.
0: Um, you raised a really pertinent point to kind of, uh, I'm literally working on a role at the moment, which I was bemoaning to the team. And and basically the money just isn't there because it's an early stage business. and we can feed back and say, look, the money doesn't match the skill sets you're trying to acquire from the industry. Um, but they still need those skill sets. So, you know, there's an element of people having to be creative. like, what can you do with fractional talent? What can you do with someone that's, you know, that, that person is retired and bringing them out of retirement and just getting them to work a kind of three-day week or, yeah, or taking their sort of career contract route, Or Or is it an opportunity to give someone who, doesn't have quite the level of experience, but probably you know, is gonna get you there and is enthusiastic and then you can kind of be a bit more open-minded. But all of the kind of challenges are the same in that we're confronted with, the insurance industry pays very well um, and it's very difficult to kind of pull people out of that industry, which either means that we need to set expectations on kind of startups um, and particularly, probably the relationship with the investors, um, I've seen that quite a few times where the investors are going, oh, no one in this business can be paid more than some arbitrary figure. But that just doesn't bear fruit with reality. You know, people are paid different different things. Uh, I mean, in your kind of previous experiences or maybe in your current experiences, is is that, or, or more that you're plugged in, you're very plugged into your tech ecosystem. Is that kind of like downward pressure sometimes from... Like maybe investors, or do you think that's just an accepted part of kind of starting an insure tech? is that you're going to have to take a
1: really big haircut on your form? I think part of it is some some of the people that come into uh, insurance or insure tech maybe aren't from the space and they don't realize the value of of what that role is. Um, you know whether it's like the connections they have to the market uh, in a BD role. Um, you know, the very specialized experience that actually, that, 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 excuse me, that that actuary or underwriter has, um, or like the specialized claims experience that, that maybe is, is needed for the particular product they're building. Um, So I think of it as like, if you were, if you were a startup, explain an AI startup, explaining why, why this developer is costing me $400,000 right now, uh, because, if I can't, I, I need to get them from Google or I need to get them from, you know, NVIDIA, where, wherever it might be. Um, that's a conversation that, uh, startups, uh, entrepreneurs seem to easily have with, with investors. And I think for this space in particular, there has to be that same realization, like this person that we are seeking this need that we have, um, there's only, you know, 50 of those people that exist in the world. Uh, and so if that's the case, we're going to have to pay for one of one of those. And you need to understand that. And if you don't, if we don't get that, then, you know, we've increased our chances of failure by X. Um, so I think it's it's kind of an educational aspect, probably for the entrepreneur, before the investors as well. Uh, and, and maybe just like taking the expectation say, OK, like we do need another, you know, 500,000 or so to actually make this work. Um, or maybe we have to cut some corners somewhere else to to have this be the case And maybe contract out um you brought up the fractional thing which i think um my i mean my good friend dylan brand is now doing this small plug for him uh on the on the claims side um i brought him in full time uh, from james river for stable to run claims we definitely did not need a full-time claims person um but we needed his expertise for a lot of what we were doing. And now he's starting to do fractional claims work, which makes a lot of sense, right? Farming himself out to maybe five or 10 different companies at any one time, um, you know, as long as they're not competitive, they're getting the benefit of his 20 years of claims experience, uh, which, is, which is massive. So um, I think there's interesting business models that will start popping up, uh, whether they're one-off consultants doing it or kind of like small shops that might be helping source some of that talent.
0: I think the education bit is is, is a really good point because I, yeah, I'm i very fortunate enough to have pretty good relationships with the VC community. We work with a lot of them on trying to kind of help grow their portfolios. We see, therefore, lots of decks. We'll see quite early stage decks. And then, and then yeah, I mean, I've done some angel investing. Um, um, and so we see decks. And what I find fascinating is that I'll see a hiring plan, which will be, we're going to hire these people. And in these roles, I don't often see the budget that goes towards them, and and certainly with the with my search consultancy hat on, I never see the budget on how much it's going to cost you to acquire those people. Um, and look, I know I know it's a uh, you know, we're talking about insurance quite often. That's a grudge purchase. I, I know certainly a lot of the search consultancy fees are a grudge purchase as well. But it, it always kind of seems to me that it's a uh, for well, such a kind of uh, thought out labor intensive granular process of things like investment, how sometimes that stuff can be like what I consider just be a gaping hole of reality because it's going, not only are these people going to be expensive, they're probably going to be quite expensive for you to kind of go and find because you might not be able to find them because to your point, you know, good luck trying to find an AI senior developer right now. You know, like if you're not an AI senior developer recruitment specialist or you don't come from one of the places that already does that, then you will not find one like you certainly won't find on your own. You, you won't get them cheap because they don't exist. So um, and, it's, and,
1: it's a fascinating gap. And we're, I think we're, we're overlooking one part, which is the time factor in here. If you have 36 mm-hmm. months of runway, do you really have six months? And do you want your executive team focused on that? Uh, yeah. What is the value of that? Um, I, I mean, in my mind, it's like immeasurable because you, you are, again, increasing your chances of, of failure uh, by not having this specialist that you said you need, right? You put it in your deck that this is like this is a key employee that we're going to hire, um, but we don't really have the plan uh, or the funding in place uh, or at least set aside to, to do that. Um, mm. And then you, maybe you find uh, your second or your third backup after six months, uh, but something that you spent hundred hours on as an executive yourself, and and you really needed them four months ago versus you know six months in the future.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really it really feels like that kind of sunk sunk cost investment like fallacy that you tell yourself. It's like oh well I've lost already, so I've got to hang on. And you go no. Sometimes you've just made a bad investment and cut tap that off. And um, it's the one thing that still I've been doing this seventeen years, and I'm still kind of driven to distraction by by people going oh how much do you spend on recruitment? And they go zero it's impossible. It's an impossible thing because because someone has done the work. Um, we literally got it this week where we've got working with a senior exec who's who's having 24 first round interviews. And he's like, I don't spend anything on recruitment. I was like, that's 24 hours in two weeks that you're spending trying to hire someone. So yeah, it's fascinating, but look, obviously I'm I'm coming from a very selfish perspective. Um Doug we I knew we'd do this. we have flown through the kind of time for the podcast, so just kind of really want to finish on you know what's the time scale for tourists what's next what are we gonna what are we gonna I know we said
1: about the kind of first products, but does that what does this next twelve months look like for you yeah uh, i I think it's just getting us live uh with with our banking product, obviously payments product um the lending product we are we're starting to experiment with just some with some of our own capital. Uh, but getting the credit facilities uh, built for that to allow us to scale some of that out. We are seeing some massive demand uh, for uh, specific products in the NGA space uh, in, in the States here uh, that we definitely want to make sure we have the capacity to, to, to lend towards. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, lending regulation that has to be be followed as well as you launch in different States. Um, I don't know that we'll get a premium financing product uh, live, but there's, there's just a lot of demand for smaller premium finance products. I think there's, there's great premium finance products in the States already. A lot of them issued by banks with, with banks have a cheap source of capital in their depositors. Uh, and so we're, we're not at that scale yet where we can offer anything like that. Um, So we still have to go out and get these credit facilities, but uh, I think in, in markets that a lot of incumbents are pulling out of, I think in like Florida in particular, uh, even like on the auto side, um, there's personal auto policies now that need to be premium financed, unfortunately. Uh, And there's just not, you know, most of these premium finance companies are interested in kind of the commercial side and, you know, anything five figures and above, they don't want to write that, that $1,500 auto loan or sorry, auto policy. So I think there's ways for us to, to actually make a dent in that space because some of the automations, like we can we can profitably write that um, uh, and issue that type of premium finance product. Uh, so I, I don't know that that will be live in the next 12 months, but that's definitely some of the stuff that we're starting to think about. Uh, I mean, we're just excited to keep talking to um, you know to potential customers in this space say where we were six months ago when we kind of envisioned this, it was all kind of based on what I saw as a need at Stable uh, and, and some of the design partners that we were speaking to at the time. Uh, I would say once a week, I get wind of like a new space that we need to be thinking about or a new twist on the product uh, that would be helpful or a new a new ecosystem partner that would be great to integrate with. And so I think that's just going to continue and, and we're excited to kind of see uh, see the growth of that. Awesome. Yeah, I think that'll be the biggest
0: challenge is, is, is staying focused on those kind of core offerings to start with because if this, yeah, it's a bit of a Pandora's box, I imagine, kind of looking at something like this. So, um, Doug, pleasure as always to talk to you. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Um, And presumably, we will see you next month uh, in Vegas, I think, is probably the next time. <laughs> Hopefully, London sooner. We'll see how I'm trying to get a trip. By. <laughs> I know
1: I know we have a we have a, a restaurant
0: a new restaurant that we need to try here so we do we do we do uh it's a sushi bun I'll I'll put, I'll put a link below we'll invite people along see if anyone actually does listen out there <laughs> <laughs> thanks Doug I'll speak to you very soon thanks for having me on